As we look over the next three weeks, there's a problem that, that begins uh, our, our series, that, that frames up our series, or at least it, it should get our attention. And, and it's the problem of confusion. Identity is very confusing today. What makes us who we are? Our identity, what, where is it founded? Where is it grounded? What makes us who we are? It's the great question of anyone who's coming of age. Who am I? Am I loved? Where am I going? Those questions shape us. And so the confusion of the age that we're in is a great problem. The second, second question or a second concern that we have is there doesn't seem to be out there a compelling vision for human life. What makes life good? What brings us a good life? And so there's confusion over who we are and where we're going, and there's no compelling vision out in the world. That falls then to us. And so for, for, for girls, for boys, for men, for women, there is this pressure to perform, pressure to multitask, pressure to be perfect. The humorist Garrison Keillor says this, guys are in trouble these days. Years ago, manhood was an opportunity for achievement, and now it's just a problem to overcome. Guys who once might have painted the Sistine Chapel are now just trying to be Mr. Okay, all right. The man who can bake a cherry pie, be romantic in a skillful way, and yet also lift them bales and tote that barge. There's great, there's great pressure on guys on men, on boys, to be everything, to be good at everything, to be the hero of every room. There's great pressure on the ladies too. Girls are bombarded with the pressure of perfect appearance everywhere they turn. And it's only gotten worse in the age of the internet. Television, movies, fashion. These are unachievable, paintbrushed, airbrushed ideals that are unachievable. And in addition to that, they're supposed to aspire to every office that a man might also aspire to. And so there's pressure, uh, there's pressure on, on the guys. There's pressure on the gals. And, and so we step into this vacuum of confusion over our identity without a compelling vision for human life with an opportunity to speak vision. A picture of a torch. A picture of what? A picture of authentic life together. Authenticity. Paul speaks about it. And so let's turn now and give reverent attention to the reading of God's word 
from 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For you thought you have counsel guides in Christ. You do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to, remi- to remind, my, remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of the arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or love in spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. Roman sculptors, Roman sculptors used to sign their work, Sin Sarah. And some of you, when you write a note or a letter at the very end, you write sincerely, comma, and then you put your name. You sign your name to it. Sincere. Do you know why we say sincerely? Because Roman sculptors used to sign their work, Sin Sarah. Do you know what Sin Sarah means? It means without wax. <laughs> without wax, you're loving Tim. Without wax? Without wax, we, we've got to understand what that means. Without wax, if you, if you, if you look at a, a sculpture, imagine that maybe you finished the sculpture and there were some cracks in it, and you were worried about what to do with that. Uh, lesser artists would fill it with wax, and then they'd, they'd gloss over it. They'd pour wax down into it so it would hold it, at least through the purchase of the piece. Now you see where I'm going with it. Without wax, sincerely, yours. What does it take to have an authentic life, a sincere life? A life without wax doesn't mean being perfect. Authenticity means having a hunger, being humble. And having people smarts. That's what Paul is, is talking about here in this letter to 1 Corinthians, to the Corinthian church. He's confronting a mess, a lot of confusion over identity and over direction. He's confronting a mess. 1 Corinthians is, you know, there are two, two letters to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And the first one is very confrontational because he's addressing a mess. Patrick Lencioni, in his book, The Ideal Team Player, talks about humble, hungry, and smart. And so we're going to look at what it looks like to live an authentic life by being hungry, by being humble and having a certain kind of emotional intelligence that connects day to day. So first, 
we're, we're, we live authentically, sincere, without wax, by being hungry. Hungry. What does that mean? It means you're for something. You're not, against, you're not defined by what you're against. Yeah, I, I do this little blog, Faith and Doubt, and I haven't, I haven't been writing on it for, for a while. I'm trying to get back into it. And one of my great temptations is to go negative because it does get, it gets clicks. It gets people passing my, my writing around. And I notice that a lot of journalism and most media, have you noticed this? It goes negative, you know? They start with good evening and then they go on and tell you why it's not, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a temptation to be defined by what we're against rather than what we're for. That's not a compelling picture of, of the good life. You see, when we're for something, we can take other people with us. When we're for something, we, we have a certain uh, message and voice that is an authentic voice. We speak into a vacuum of confusion with gravitas when we're for something. We know what we're for. You see, Paul is, is speaking into a very ugly, messy situation. And what he's, what he's pointing out in, in verse 14, it, it says, you have many guardians in Christ. You have many guardians. What's he saying? What does it mean, you have many guardians? See, I've I, I read past that so many times, and it, it struck me this week what he's saying. You know what he's saying? They didn't have this word back in ancient times, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, you have babysitters, but you don't have dads. You've got many babysitters. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, he is... I almost made a cultural reference that was sort of a, a, sort of a vague, profane cultural reference. He is, he is, how do you say it? He's saying, let's step outside. That's what he's saying. <laughs> let's step outside. I mean, the, them's fighting words. He's very, very serious. You have babysitters. Let's get serious, y'all. You have babysitters, Corinthian church. But you don't have very many dads. Verse, verse 14. Take a look again. I admonish you. He's not shaming them. I admonish you. What does a babysitter do? A babysitter just needs to get through, you know, 10 o'clock, right? Just needs to get to 10 o'clock and get them in bed, get them stuffed in bed before mom and dad get home, right? And so anything is fair. It's, it's just like, I'm just going to shame you into good behavior. I'm just going to hold the line. We're just going to try to keep the house from burning down. That's, that's what a babysitter does. That's what a guardian does. You have many babysitters, but you don't have many fathers. And so a babysitter might say something like, like this. You know, I'd feel really bad if you did that. I'd feel really bad. You don't want to make me feel bad. Now, yes, you can hear parents talk like a babysitter, right? And every parent has made that mistake of talking like a babysitter. Shaming people, using guilt. Guilt is a great, it's a great motivator for a very short distance. Guilt works, but not 
long distance, not for passing the torch. Paul doesn't just want the golden egg of behavior from the Corinthian church. He wants the goose. He wants, he wants them to own their faith. He wants them to live their life and not just get a certain kind of behavior out of them, like a babysitter. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, Coach Tom Landry, old Dallas Cowboys football coach when I was a kid. He said, my job as a coach is to get people to do what they don't want to do so that they can be what they only dream they could be. That's a father. How to get people to do what they don't necessarily, aren't necessarily motivated to do so that they can become something. You're for something. You're for something when you're hungry, when you're driven. When you have a hunger for the vision that God has for us, for human life, for the good life, when you have a hunger, you're for something, and so you're for other people. You don't want just a certain behavior from them. You don't want just a certain something from them. You know what it looks like to get there. You know what it looks like, and even though you're not there yourself, you speak into the people's lives around you in a way that you're for them. You're going somewhere. You're not just against. Hungry people know what they're for. And as a result, they take other people with them. Hungry, humble, and smart. Humble now. Let's take a look at humble. To live an authentic life, we, we need to be humble. Now, you hear the word humble and it's wrecked. The word is wrecked. We don't know what humble means. The best definition of humble is this that I've ever heard. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You've heard this? It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. One of our founding fathers, George Washington, towards the end of his life, a portrait, a, a painting was commissioned for him. And he said famously, paint me warts and all. Paint me warts and all. How would you do it? <laughs> what would your portrait look like? What would my portrait look like? Would, would, I, would I want them to paint me warts and all? I want the ideal version, right? I want uh, you know, a little, little pixie dust around or something like that. Some kind of a glow in the background. You know, something, make things stand out that, in a way that they don't normally. Paint me warts and all says, this is who I am. I, I'm going to be my full self. Not less than I am. Not more than I am. You see, that's a picture of not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Verse 18. Here's some big talkers in the Corinthian church. Big talkers. They talk big. They don't have a lot to back it up. They are projecting what they want other people to see. This is what I want you to see. This is my ideal picture of me, and I want you to see it. They're big talkers. Talk is cheap, Paul is saying. Who are these babysitters that are talking so big? Do they not know that I'm, I'm, I'm coming? 
and I'm coming to ask them to step outside? You say, is he really being that rough? Yeah, he's being that rough. He's giving them a choice. He's being very confrontational. It's a mess, but he signed up for the mess. Don't forget that. We're going there. It's a mess, but he signed up for that mess. He steps into that mess with a sense of gravitas. He knows what he's for with a sense of humility. He's not thinking less of himself, but he is thinking of himself less. You see, he sends Timothy. He's not worried about who's going because he knows that what he's talking about is a lifestyle that has power. He knows that what he's talking about is a lifestyle that can be lived and not just spoken. He's not just sending somebody with big talk. He's saying, you know what? I'm gonna send my protege. He's not even, he's not even fully baked yet, but he can do a better job than your babysitters. That's confidence in the picture that Paul sees of the good life. Paul is actively passing the torch to Timothy. Timothy's torch is on fire. Timothy is not finished being trained, and yet he's running the race. He's carrying the flame. And Paul puts him into active service sooner rather than later. He's not waiting until he's fully baked. He's saying, look, he's living this thing. He's running this thing. He's walking the walk. And so I'm sending him to you, even though he's 18, 19 years old. Pretty powerful. Here's a guy, Timothy, who's not thinking less of himself. He's thinking of himself less. He isn't walking around wondering what everybody's thinking of him. He is, however, concerned about how his life can be an influence around him. Do you see the difference between that? It's an important contrast. So often our self-talk is, I hope they like me, I hope they, they think I'm cool, or I hope they, they, don't, they didn't think that that was too weird or crazy or whatever. I hope they like, you know, whatever it is that, that you want people to see. Projection, projection, talk, talk. And we, we should be concerned about what people think about us, but not in a way that is self-conscious about who we are. We should have confidence. We should be concerned with how we're leading other people just by the way we live. Paul had confidence in Timothy. He said, just go live it out. Go live it with them, and I'm coming. Do you have people in your life like that? They have great humility. Ed Henniger, Alan Poole, two people I have trouble speaking about because they are so profoundly important and influential in my life. Paul and Timothy, I watched them live it. I watched Ed pour his life out for a church, and I watched Alan taking the baton, taking the torch. I watched Ed set Alan up for success. Demuring his own stature, he gained stature. Humility, because they were living a life that they, they believed. They wanted people to see and experience that life. They didn't want to just talk big and use pretty words. They wanted people to catch on fire. Ed and Alan, for me, presented a picture of that torch being passed. Do you have that? Do you... Do you have people in your life that you're very consciously aware of 
who are living a good life, not a perfect life, but a life of humility where they're not thinking less of themselves, but they're thinking of themselves less. Hungry and humble and smart, finally smart. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you, know, you have a, a high IQ. It means you have a high EQ, emotional intelligence. And what, does that, what does that mean? Is this just one more thing that we're supposed to do, Tim? Is this just one more of those, all right, now here's one more uh, box I have to check. I've got to figure out what emotional intelligence is. No, it's just simply this. Emotional people are willing to grow and keep growing. It's powerful to see people in your life who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, still willing to grow. The people who inspire, not the people who shame, not the people who wag their finger, the people who inspire us are people who are growing. You see, we cannot lead where we're unwilling to go. We cannot lead people where we ourselves are unwilling to go. Let me say it this way. We cannot lead where we're unwilling to grow. But when we are willing to continue to grow, to be somewhere along the way, not perfect, not with all kinds of performance pressure, but just simply willing to listen, to hear it, to do it differently, to be teachable all life long. Ah, oh, it's powerful to see people who are willing to grow. I hear stories about people who are, are willing to grow, and I, I see a contrast in the culture, and sometimes we don't always understand why something bothers us, right? We don't always understand what's wrong with that person, but it's probably emotional unintelligence. Think of like The Office, right? Have you seen that, that show, the series The Office? Wouldn't recommend it. I'm not recommending it. But the boss, played by Steve Carell, uh, is so hilarious because he's just absolutely stuck. That is the most stuck person of all humans. Is he not the most stuck character? I mean, he's smart. And, you know, he can carry on conversation and he can engage around the and he knows what what to do, and he's running, you know, a tight ship. But emotionally, he is a child. But it's not that he's a child. Now listen to this. It's not that he's a child. He may be a teenager. He may be a young adult emotionally. But he's not growing. He's stuck. There's a, there's a principal who, two principals, story of two principals, and, and they were competing for the same job. And uh, one of them had five years experience and one of them had 10 years experience. And the job was given to the one with five years experience. And the fellow with 10 years experience protested, went in, talked to the superintendent, said, look, I've, I've got twice as much experience. I have seniority. I have priority here. And the principal said, well, that, that's another bit of evidence of why you didn't get the job. You see, she had five years of experience and you had 10 years of the same one-year experience. She grew for five years and what you've done is you've gone on uh, pilot, autopilot and repeated the same first-year experience. She's willing to grow. You are stuck. 
You cannot lead people where you're not willing to grow. That's emotional intelligence. It's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you're a mess. You're a mess, but it's not about the mess. <laughs> I'm coming, I, I still have hope for you. If somebody is confronting you, it means they have hope for you. It's not because necessarily they're, they're upset with you. If somebody is, is expecting more out of you, it's because they expect more out of you. They have high expectations of you. And a father or a mother, somebody who is, is living a good life, good in the sense of hungry and humble, they can speak in a way that doesn't shame you. They can speak in a way that inspires you. And when they're willing to grow themselves and you see them growing, they inspire by the way that they live. See, Paul signed up for this mess. He speaks into this mess. He sends his protege into this mess. He has great confidence in the midst of the mess because for Paul, it's not about getting it perfect. It's about being willing to keep going, to keep on growing. You know, I signed up for a mess. And I'm not saying that this is like the Corinthian church. But ministry is, no, I'm not, I'm not. I signed up for ministry, so I signed up to be in the mess. Because life is messy. And we shouldn't be trying to project at people what we just want them to see. And we shouldn't be against this, that, and the other thing and defined by what we're against, but to be for and to know what it looks like to be for people around us. But to be able to be a mess ourselves, that the mess that we have is part of our message, right? The mess that we have is part of our message. And when we're willing to keep on growing, we can speak into people's lives around us. And that's part of an ethos. And you say, well, what, is, is Tim have a, like a vision or a, a sense of where, what the church is supposed to be about? This is getting as close to it as I, I've come to actually saying it is to have a certain community ethos here. I wrote, a, I wrote an article uh, to get my blog jump-started again called How to Have a Home with Hum. And I want you to go take a look at it if you'd like to. Go take a look at it. And there are practical, there are about seven or eight practical ways that you can have a, a home with hum. And it's not about being perfect. It's about living an authentic life. It's about not trying to get everybody to see, around you to see what you just want them to see. It's about being for and not just against. It's about being willing to keep on growing. You see, that's an authentic life. That's a life worth following. And so, if we're going to have a torch worth passing, then we have to have live a life worth following. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the forerunners of the faith. Who are the forerunners of the faith? First Presbyterian Church in your life and in the world today. And who are the people to whom we are called to call up, to present a vision in the confusing picture of who I am and am I loved and where am I going? In that confusing picture in the world today, 
to be, able to, comp- to, to be able to paint a compelling picture, a vision of the good life, is to live it first, to be hungry, to be humble, to be smart. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your love for us and for the table that expresses it. And we do pray that you would set aside these, these elements from their common use to a sacred purpose, that as we receive from this plate and from this cup, we would experience a magnificent exchange of our sin for your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus lived an authentic human life, a good life. He lived it close, shoulder to shoulder, with people who could see that he was sincere without wax. He lived it all the way through his death and into the resurrection. He said, this is my body. He took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples, said, this is my body broken for you that you may be made whole. And in the same way, he said, this is the cup of my new covenant poured out into your life. Take and eat, take and drink. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death on our behalf until he comes again. Today we'll receive communion by intention. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you've said, what you've done, where you've been. This is a table of relationship, of restored relationship. You'll, you'll come to one of two, table, two, uh, two uh, stations here. The elders will be holding the, 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 the plate and the cup. You'll take one wafer and you'll dip it into the cup and receive it in your mouth. You come, everybody will come. If you're on the sides, you'll go to the back and come by way of the center aisle and everyone will return by the side aisles. Jesus says, Come, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.